It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jeremy Johnson. As John said, I'm one of the pastors at Hope, along with John and with Andy and, and with a lot of other people that are so blessed to be a part of what God's doing here, to be a part of this church, to be a part of this community of believers who, who's, who's pursuing to hear what God has to say to us and who's leading us and who's guiding us. We are starting off, as John talked about, we're starting off a new message series. The last seven weeks we've been doing this series called Healthy Church, where we looked at how God's Word and how, how God's love transforms us to be the church and to be the people that He's created us to be. And now to follow that off for the rest of the summer, we're going to be in this series called, that, that's called Since You Asked, where we're going to take the opportunity to press into and to investigate and to probe some of the fundamentals, some of the foundational questions that so many of us have. Because as a church, we believe that this is the place where we should bring our questions. And I hope and I, and I really pray that, that all of us won't, won't ever hear an answer and just say, okay, that's good for me and I'm not going to investigate it. The apathetic faith is a faith that's dead and we should always press into it. We should always ask the question. This should be a beginning point where we can discover and we continue to learn what God has to say to us. And today, as, as we start, we're going to start with this, with this question that, that we hear so often, that the, the media, that, that society paints this question to us all the time. And the question is, is, do we still need Jesus? Do we still need His church? Is this a message? Is this something that's still, that's still poignant, that still speaks to us today, or is it outdated? Or is it old-fashioned? Or is it somehow lost touch with, with a culture that seems to be so different than the culture that we find in the pages of Scripture? Does Jesus, does His church still have anything to say to us today any longer? It's a question that people are asking. I think it's a question a lot of us ask at the same time as well. It was just a, about a month ago, Time Magazine had, had a cover story. It was a, a look that they had at the millennials, this new generation of people that are, that are coming of age. Time Magazine does this about every five or six years. It's incredible that the generations, because of the culture that we live in, generations are changing this quickly. And this, this, uh, this story on the millennials, this new generation, it was, it was a story that was met with a lot of criticism, a lot of pushback. A lot of people heard what the, what the reporters and, and the writers had to say about the next generation, and, and, and they had a lot of, of problems with it, because the writers said that this new millennial generation, it's the me, me, me generation. That the millennials, this next generation, is the laziest generation that we've ever seen. That they're apathetic. That they're slow to commit to anything. And a lot of people started to say, well, that, that's just not the case. But, but the Time Magazine article also said that this is the generation that, that just might bring about the most medical and scientific change that we've ever seen. Because they're looking at things, they're pressing into things, they're investigating things. It's a fantastic article, but one of the things that I found the most interesting was something that was written in between the lines. It was written in between the lines about this generation of people who are coming of age, but it also speaks volumes to who we are today as well. Do you know that, that people today, over 80% of them, you say, Jeremy, this isn't groundbreaking at all. I could have told you this. 80% of people have a social media account, at least one. But what's a little frightening about that is most of those people view social media as their primary source of community, and their primary source of information. 
any time of the day, you can go and you can plug in and you can connect to something. You can get the answers that you're looking for. You can connect to somebody that's halfway around the world. And we're always, we're constantly plugging into something. On average, Americans spend 16 minutes per hour on social media in front of a screen. It's on average 6.4 hours a day, a quarter of our days. We're connecting to something, but we're not connecting to someone, are we? Just a couple weeks ago, I was meeting a friend out for coffee. We were meeting at Starbucks, and, and I got there earlier than he did. And, and as I got there, I looked around. I got my coffee, and I was looking around for a table to, to sit at. Each table had at least a minimum of two chairs around it. There was only one table left. But every other table, except for one, so there's two tables left, was occupied by only one person. Tables that were meant for community were tables that were be, being used for isolation and every single person was connecting to somebody but were they really connecting we're more connected as a society that we've ever been before we have the ability to get information instantaneously we have the ability to connect to somebody instantaneously instantaneously but we've lost the ability to have community what we see is in our endless pursuit of trying to connect and get information, we're going faster and faster and faster and faster. And the pace of our culture has become frenetic. We've lost the ability to just rest, to be still. We're looking to other people. We're looking to other things to form our identity, to form our purpose, our value, to form our opinions for us. We don't know if there's ever a truth that we can stand on that, that won't shift, that won't move. We start to ask ourselves the question, is there more to life than this? Or is this as good as it gets? Is there more that this world can offer me? Or, or am I always going to be spinning my wheels as quickly as they're spinning right now? 1987, U2, uh, which Rolling Stone rates one of the greatest bands of all time. U2 had an album that was released in 1987. Rolling Stone dictates that it's the best album that's ever been created. The album was called The Joshua Tree. And on this album, there are three songs that were number one hits. With or Without You, Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, Where the Streets Have No Names, these anthems, these songs that, that can, can trigger a response in us so quickly. But there was another song on that album that resonated with me, even as a fifth grader, 1987, even as a young child, there's something about this song that just spoke to me, resonated with my soul. The song was called Running to Stand Still. What a picture of our lives. What a picture of who we've become. We're working so hard, we're moving so fast, just to feel as if we're catching up. We ask ourselves and we wonder, will I ever find anything that can give me rest? Allow me to slow down, to be still, to not have to try so hard, just to be okay. We're so incredibly connected, but we're also so isolated. 
Mother Teresa, at one point, she was asked what she thought the greatest affliction that the world was facing. And Mother Teresa did not say extreme poverty. You know what she said? Isolation. The greatest problem that the, the human race encounters is this aspect that they feel incredibly alone. It's the power, it's the message, it's the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of Jesus. That's why the message of Jesus, over 2,000 years old, does not grow old, does not grow stale. Jesus is talking with his disciples. It's towards the latter half of John's gospel. Jesus has just told his disciples that he's not going to be with them very much longer. That he's going to have to go and he's going to have to give his life. And his disciples, they, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to, they don't want to think about life without him. They, they've given up everything to follow him. They've left their families. They've left their jobs. They've left everything behind. Jesus tells them that he, that he needs to go, and they're saying, Jesus, what are we going to do without you? How are we going to find our direction? How are we going to find our purpose? Who's going to be our leader? I mean, Jesus, if you go, things are going so well for us right now, Jesus. If you go, where do we go? How do we know what we're going to do any longer if you go? And Jesus tells them, in the beginning of John 14, John 14, verse 1, Jesus tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm sure they hear these words and they say, what are, you, what are you talking about? You just told us that you're not going to be with us very much longer. Don't let our hearts be troubled. That caused me so much angst and anxiety, Jesus, that you're not going to be with us. We're going to lose our leader. Jesus says, trust in God. Trust also in me. He says, there's more than enough room in my Father's home. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And you know it is where I'm going, Jesus says. You know the place to where I'm going, and you know how to get there. Thomas, one of his disciples, he, he articulates the thoughts that are on so many of their minds. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know. How are we to know where you're going? How are we to know the way? And Jesus responds in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. It's through following me. It's through my message. It's through my way. It's through this life, this way, this, in the Greek word, it's called hodos. It's this path. It's a physical path, but it's a way of living. It's through that way that you will find a life that will allow you to find identity. It's the message of Jesus Christ. It's a message that, that fills us that satisfies that craving that's in each and every single one of our hearts and our souls, that we try to fill up with so many other things, knowing ultimately that they will never satisfy us. It's Jesus who says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll be your source of rest. I'll be... Be what it is that you're looking for. I'm your identity. I'm your foundation. I'm your truth. It's the message of Jesus Christ that was the same yesterday, today, and it will be forever. It's the power of that unchanging message, and it's the power of the church that he formed and he called and he sends out. And you say, but yeah, Jeremy, I can agree with everything you said about Jesus. I, I can intellectually grasp that, comprehend that. 
But you see, I got a problem with the church. I love Jesus, but I don't know if I really like his church very much. Some years ago, there was a pastor by the name of Doug Fields. He's a pastor. He's a sought-after speaker. I saw him at a conference. And Doug Fields was talking to a group of pastors, and he said, so many times I hear people that will say to me, Doug, I respect what you do. I love what you do. I even like Jesus. I like the message that you proclaim. But Doug, what I have a problem with is I have a problem with the church. It's organized religion. Doug Field said his most common response when he hears that is he says, what was their name? Who was it that hurt you in such a way that's left such a bitter and a sour taste in your mouth that when you think about church, all you think about is hurt, all you think about is pain, all you think about is something that is fallen, that is broken? Because that's not what the church is about. We often equate church to, to a building or some place that we go to. But that's not the church that Jesus gave his life for. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we are to love one another. Our marriages are to be founded on a love that Jesus had for the church. He gave his life for it. And if there is something wrong with it, if there is something that was, should be dismissed about it, would he have died for it? gave his life for it. He had great love for it. But sometimes we need to correct and we need to, to reframe our thinking of, of what church truly is. So when we look through the, the New Testament, we see these three words that, that come about in the Greek that describe the, the work of the church. The first one on the top there is the word hagios. Say hagios. Don't you just sound smarter now? The word hagios, it means holy. In the New Testament, we see the word hagios, and it's, it's always paired with the Spirit. Anytime we hear the Spirit, it's the hagios Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But you know where else the word hagios is used in the New Testament? It's the people who are carrying out the mission of the church. It's the church is hagios. It's the hagios. It's the saints. It means they're set apart. They're set apart for a special purpose, for a special function. Each and every single one of us has been set apart through the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. You've been set apart, you've been set aside for a special purpose. You've been anointed by God to go out into the world and to be His saints, to be His church, to be the people who will bring about the message of transformation that comes through His truth. The other word that we hear, see is liturgia. Say liturgia. If you grew up in the church, you might know the word liturgy. Should we equate liturgy with the order of worship or the order of things? When we see the word liturgia in the New Testament, it's, it's often talking about the work of the people done on behalf of the people. What a beautiful picture of the church. It's the work of the people done on behalf of the people. We're working to change other people. It's God's work through us. Jesus gave his life for it, to give his spirit to us that we can work for people on behalf of people. The last one is the ecclesia. It means God's gathered people. 
Jesus says, where, where two or three people are gathered in my name, I am there with them. That any time people come together under the name of Jesus Christ, under the acknowledgement of, of, of God's redeeming work in their lives, that Jesus is there and you are doing church. That's why Serve Saturday next week is such a huge thing. So you're the ecclesia. You're God's hands and feet in this world. You're doing church in the community. That yes, church, when we come and we come and worship, it's an extraordinarily powerful thing where we hear God's promises and, and we give God praise through song and through worship. That's an essential part of what it means to be a church, but it's not all that church is. A church isn't a place, we see that church is an action. Something we do, that's something that's enacted in us. And we're better together, aren't we? The church is the hope of the world. The messengers of Jesus Christ. And we need to come together and we need to be one. We need to be the body with one another. Starting next Saturday on the 29th is one of the few times in the year that my wife allows me to completely geek out on something. June 29th this year starts the Tour de France. It's a bike race that, that literally goes around the perimeter of France. About 220-some riders, 22 teams, will compete with one another to, to do this race. They'll ride over about 2,100 miles this year in 21 stages. They get a few rest days. So they're going on average 100 miles a day. Last year's winner averaged about 25 miles an hour the entire race. You think that's impossible. We know that there's some blood doping, and that's not a good thing at all. But in the purest sense, we ask ourselves, how do they do that? How do they maintain that? How do they work that efficiently? It's because they work together. No matter if they're on a different team than somebody else, each team composed of about 10 riders, they have to work in unison. If you watch a, steward, uh, a stage of this, of this race, of the tour, of any bike race, you'll usually see a glob of riders that will be riding together, and you think from the outside that it looks like pure chaos. But it's a group of about 150 riders that will, will be riding so close to one another that if they were to put their hand out, they would hit each other. It's called the peloton. It's an intentional group of riders that work together. And the fundamental rule of riding a race like that is you don't want to get isolated. You need one another. You need to work with one another. Each person in that group does a function. They do a purpose. They're vital to the whole. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's writing to a church that's in conflict. They're having problems. They're elevating some people above other people and saying some people are more important and, and some people are less important. And Paul's telling them in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's vital that they share the load. That each person in the church, each person in the body, in the belly, in, in this group of believers is vital to the whole. And if one of them goes away, that God's work isn't done as efficiently. You can say to yourself, oh, I don't preach like John, or I'm not able to play music like Kim, or, or I can't run computer, or I can't, I can't do sound. I can't, I can't do those upfront things, so I'm not important to the body. It's foolish. It's not the truth. 
You've been created in the image of God. You've been created in the image of God on purpose for a purpose. And discovering how you've been created and the gifts that you've been given will share the light of Jesus Christ in the world around you. It's part of your load. It's sharing the load. That when somebody is hurting, you're able to comfort them. When somebody has found themselves getting isolated, you, you welcome them back in. That's why Paul says in, in the book of Romans that when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that's worship. That when we do what we do in the way that God created us and giving thanks to Him, that we're worshiping Him through our lives. We share the load with one another. You're vital to the mission of God in this world. You're not an accident. There's nothing about you that's, that's not able to be used by God in extraordinary ways to bring light to a world that sometimes can seem dark. You are who you are because God created you that way. It's in the beginning of Mark's Gospel. It's Mark chapter 2. There's a group of four guys who have heard about Jesus. They've heard the words. They've heard the stories. They've, they've heard about the things that Jesus has been doing in the communities that he's visited. They've heard about the way in which he teaches people and, and just the command and the authority that he's had. They hear that he's, he's healing people of their diseases. He, he's restoring people back to life. And these four friends, they hear that Jesus is going to be at one of the houses in the town. And, and it comes across their mind that they... They need to carry their friend to the feet of Jesus because their friend's been paralyzed. See, they know that Jesus is the source of life. And they also know that their friend has no way physically to get there on his own. So the four friends, they go and they, they, pick up this, they pick up the mat. They pick up the mat that the man is laying on. And the man must be saying, what are you guys doing? So, oh, we've got to bring you someplace. We're going to bring you someplace where you're going to experience healing. You're going to be restored. They pick him up and they begin to, to carry him across the town. And they, they get to the house that Jesus is, is teaching in. And they see that, that it's overflowing with people. That there's no way that they could gain entrance into that room. I'm sure the paralyzed man said, guys, thanks. I thank you for having enough compassion on doing this much for me, but they won't have it. They won't be dissuaded. Start to climb up onto the roof and they start to hoist the man up there. As soon as they get the man on the, the roof of the house, they, they start to burrow through the roof. They start to tear the roof apart. They literally lower the man to Jesus' feet. Jesus looks at the man and says, you're, my child, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And then he looks at the friends and he says, your faith has healed them. One of the powers of community, one of the powers of church is that we literally carry people to the feet of Jesus Christ. That our faith, that the way in which God calls us and, and uses us will bring restoration and renewal in life into people who've lost it. It's a powerful thing. It's an extraordinary thing. It's a holy thing. It's what the church does best when the church is doing what it's called to do. 
It's bringing hope to the hopeless. It's bringing life to the lifeless. It's carrying people to the feet of the one who can save. But there's a flip side to that as well. Because sometimes we need to be carried, don't we? Think where we find ourselves today. Oftentimes somebody will ask us, well, how's it going for you today? And we say, well, it's going fine. So, no, really, how, how is it going for you? Oh, it's fine, everything's good. Regardless of how things really are going. There's this idea in our lives that to admit that we're going through a struggle is to admit weakness or flaw or fault on our, point, on our part. If we didn't need to be saved at some point in our life, we wouldn't need a Savior, would we? There are times in our lives where we need to be carried. We need to be in community. We need to be in community in such a way that we can allow ourselves to to feel the strength and the life that comes from the body of believers that's doing the work on our behalf. Yes, we're called to carry others, but we're also called to be carried. None of us are perfect. None of us can distance ourselves from the reality of a fallen and a broken world that sometimes can leave us paralyzed. We need to be carried. One of my good friends is is training for an Ironman triathlon. It's going to take place in September. Ironman triathlons are for the really sick at heart. It's a a 2.4-mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike ride, followed by a full marathon, 26.2 miles. It's an extraordinary feat. So he's been training for this for quite a while, and he was telling me, it was just two weeks ago, that, that he and a group of guys were going out, and they're going out on a ride with one another. They're going out for an 80-mile bike ride. It was a group of about 15 of them, and, and they were riding in a body, in a group with one another. Because they couldn't cover this distance if it was just on their own. They needed one another. It was a windy day. They're about 65 miles into their trip. They're just approaching the home stretch where they would get back to their cars. And my friend, there was a guy that was riding right in front of them. And it was such a windy day that they were really kind of getting as close as they could to one another to break the power of that wind. Uh, an inch to the right, an inch to the left, they could risk running into each other. It was in this stretch that my friend Ben said that there was a, a kind of a gust of wind that hit him. Ben said, I didn't know if it was my bike that moved or if it was his bike that moved, but, but somehow we got locked. Our wheels hit one another. The derailleur, which is literally the gears on the back of the person's bike in front of them, and, and my friend's brakes, they, they, they got latched to one another. They're going about 22, 23 miles an hour at this point. All they have to protect them is a, a little helmet. And Ben said, I, I knew that we were going down. I, I was scared. I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And he said, they're both trying to, to get detached from one another, but it wasn't working. Ben said, my adrenaline was going. I was so scared. He said, luckily, at the last moment, they were able to get dislodged from one another. But, but as they made their way back to the cars, they both saw that there was quite a bit of damage that had been done to each other's bikes. I asked Ben, I said, well, 
Aren't you scared when you ride with people like that? Scared that you're going to get hurt? So there's times where you run into each other. But it's worth it. How foolish would it have been to, to have them get back to their cars and for Ben and his friend to look at the rest of the group of riders around him and to say, well, we, we collided. Now you have to determine who's right and who's wrong. Whose fault was it? And whoever's fault it was needs to be removed from this group of riders. But that's how we operate in community, isn't it? I mean, there are times in life, there are times when we're doing this thing together that, that we will collide with one another. It's inevitable. We're human beings. We are not perfect. But so often we have somebody who thinks differently than we do or, or reacts differently than we do, and we say, well, I've, I've had enough with you. And you're not welcome here any longer. If you're going to be a part of this church, if you're going to be a, a part of this group, then you need to somehow conform to who I am. One of Jesus' disciples comes up to him one day and says, Jesus, i got a question for you. I mean, how many times must I forgive a brother who has sinned against me? M must I forgive him seven times? I mean, would you call me to go that far? And Jesus says, no, not seven times. I'm sure he's thinking, oh, I knew that you weren't that crazy, Jesus. Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven times infinitely more than that. See, we're going to run into each other at times. We're not a perfect church. We're not a perfect body. But what God can do through us is so much more powerful than what God can do through just us individually. That we're His body. We're a community that's called by grace to extend grace to the world around us. So that all people might hear the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. So they might come to the feet of the God who can save them. Who can redeem them. Who can restore them. Who can shine light in the midst of darkness. It's the gospel text that was read just a little bit ago. It's Matthew 13. Jesus says, but blessed are you who have heard. Blessed are you who know. But you got to call. There's a call in your life to go out into all of the world. Jesus says just before he ascends into heaven in Matthew 28, he says, therefore, knowing all of this amazing things that, that you've seen and that you've witnessed and that you've experienced, blessed are you. But therefore, go into all of the world, into all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go preach the good news. Go set the captives free. Go bring life and meaning and purpose to a world that desperately needs to hear it. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here to be a church that has boundaries and walls that keeps other people out. We're here to be a church that goes out and welcomes new people in. Our work is not done until all people know the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. That's the church. That's the power of what we are called to do with one another. And it's an amazing gift. It blesses us and it blesses the world around us to be that place, to be the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and pray and we're going to worship. God, thank you. Thank you for being that kind of God for us.
Thank you for allowing us to be your church. Thank you for the truth that comes in who you are. And thank you for the power of your name that we can go out into the world and share with people the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we ask that you continually, you continually use us. God, we thank you for all of this. And we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen.